go. It's always an honor and a privilege to be able to share God's word. It is my sincere hope that when you leave tonight, you will think, I heard God speak to us through his word. Over the years, I've heard countless sermons about how Christians are to live and to act, and for the most part, they've all been very good and encouraging. But I've heard relatively few sermons about why we should do that. And of course, the why is because of Jesus, that he is more than worthy of our gratitude and obedient submission. But it's like we just assume everybody understands that, and we now live in a world where many people know very little about Jesus, and it's easy for us to just take it for granted or forget about what he's done. I'm convinced that without a, a constant diet of Jesus and his greatness, that we make three grave mistakes. First of all, we tend to cheapen the most important things and make the lesser things more important. Secondly, we, re we remove the real motivation and the reason for doing the things that we do in the Christian walk. And thirdly, it's just easy to forget how awesome and how gracious Jesus is. There are numerous passages that we could look at tonight to talk about the greatness of Jesus, but I have chosen a section from Colossians chapter 1. So if you'd like to turn there, I'll be looking at various things in, in this passage all evening. But let's read together, first of all, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He, meaning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In these five or six verses that we've just read, Paul, you can, you can sort of summarize what Paul says into three groupings. First of all, he talks about Christ's relationship with God that's unique, that none of us could say. And then he talks about, in various ways, his relationship with the creation. And then later he talks about the, the, his relationship with us, the new creation. So let's look at those. First, Christ's relationship with God. In verse 15, it says he's the image of God. We know that the Bible tells us that God made us, man, in his image to reflect his character and his nature. As Genesis 1 and verse 27 and 28 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Unfortunately, sin marred God's intention for man. In other words, because of our sin, we can no longer truly reveal the nature and character of God on our own. But when Jesus entered the world, he revealed the glory, the majesty, the character of God perfectly. Notice how other scriptures verify this statement. John 1.18, no one, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. 
or John chapter 14 and verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Or Colossians 1.15 and the ESV, he is the visible image of the invisible God. I like that. We learn much about a boss from his employees if it's a public service company especially. When we lived in Spring Hill, on occasion, Glenda and I would go to the Sonic in Spring Hill. And the, the young people who were there bringing your food to the car, they were nice and they were, it was, it was a good operation. But it wasn't a great one in my estimation. We've uh, dropped by the Sonic on James Campbell a few times. And there's a marked difference. There's obviously somebody there who really trains those people to be friendly and helpful and go the second mile. I don't know who owns that. Maybe somebody here does for all I know. But whoever that is, they have done a good job of training people how to do what they do. Now, the reason I say that is the Bible tells us when Jesus came to earth, he was made a little lower than the angels, according to Hebrews chapter 2. And thus, he's a whole lot less than God in his human form. And it's not like Jesus is the servant and God is the boss, but it's the same kind of uh, superior to inferior relationship. But with Jesus, we see perfectly what God is all about. We see his patience because we see it in Jesus. We see God's forgiveness because we see it in Jesus. We see God's grace because we see it in Jesus. What a savior we serve because he is in the image of God perfectly. But that's not all Paul says about his relationship with the Father. He says in verse 19 that he's the fullness of God. A little different emphasis here. Here, everything that God is, Jesus is. They're both all-powerful. They're both all-knowing. They're both eternal and holy and righteous and sinless. When I was uh, a boy... I watched my dad be a deacon and then an elder, and on a number of occasions when a church around the area didn't have a preacher, they would call and my dad would go out and speak. He had no training to do that, but he was very good at it. And I got to go with him on a number of occasions, and as people got to know me, they said something to me that, that I took as a compliment. They said, you are definitely your father's son. Well, as imperfect as that analogy is, because nobody is is everything that, that the Father is. When Jesus came along, he is the Father's Son in every way, and he is in the fullness of God. If, God, if Jesus was powerful over demons, then obviously God is too. If Jesus was powerful over sickness and death, then obviously God is too. Jesus was power, had power over death, then obviously God does too. The bottom line is that when we see Jesus in the scripture, we see the God that we serve. He is in the fullness of God. What a powerful reason for us to be the kind of people he wants us to be. But Paul is just getting started because he doesn't just talk about his relationship with God. Now he talks about his relationship with the creation in three amazing ways. In verse 15, he says he is the firstborn over all creation. That's a terminology that doesn't, we look at that and we say, what in the world does that mean? If we had been the initial readers and we had especially been Jews, we would have understood that immediately. Because in that passage, 
He was not saying that Jesus was the first to be created as some religions teach today. Rather, he was using the Jewish cultural idea of the rights of the firstborn son. Among other things, the firstborn son would be the, called the heir. And if a, if a man, if a Jewish man had four sons, and it was, he was about to die and he was going to divide his property, he would add one number to that and he would divide by five. And the oldest son would get two portions. So he would get 40%, two-fifths, and the other three sons would get a fifth. And that's the way they did it. Firstborn was the heir, then the family name would go on, the, the lineage would go on that way in so many ways. And so when he says firstborn over creation, he's talking about not being born, but about being the heir. He's the one for whom all of this is. All creation was designed for Jesus. In other words, he is truly in charge of it. Notice how the writer of Hebrews described Jesus in the second verse of his book. He said, he was appointed heir of all things. And so if Jesus is not just the savior of mankind, but also the heir of the universe, we truly serve an amazing power. But then he goes on in verse 16 to say, but he's also the one who created it all. What do we mean by all? He goes on to say, it's everything in heaven, all the planets, all the stars, all the comets, all that vast space between galaxies, all of that he created. And then he says, everything on earth, things in the air, everything from the hummingbird to the eagle and all sorts of birds of sizes and shapes. On the land, everything from uh, the chipmunk to the, to the lion to the bear to the elephant and everything in between. Everything in the depths of the sea. From the strange jellyfish to sharks to the lovely food that we eat like tuna to the giant squid to the blue whale and probably so many things we've never even known are yet, that yet there. He created them all. And then it says he created everything visible and invisible. Invisible, things we cannot see. Germs, microbes, bacteria, virus, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, and on and on it goes. And there's probably much more there. God must laugh at us sometimes. I think we know it all now. I wish I could have spent a day, just a day, with Thomas Edison when he was on the earth. He invented so many things, things like the light bulb, the phonograph, the nickel iron battery. He was a constant source of, of invention. But Thomas Edison's creativity pales, pales in comparison to what Jesus has done for us. Colossians is not the only place to so describe Jesus. In Hebrews 1 and verse 2, it says, through whom, meaning Jesus, he, meaning God, made the universe. In John chapter 1 in verse 3, the Bible says, through whom all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. What a creator we have that we serve. And finally, if that's not enough, if, it's, if he didn't create it and he created it for himself to enjoy, then it says in verse 17, he's the sustainer of it all. That's not the word in the Bible here. But what he says is, he is before all things, meaning he's eternal, and in him all things hold together. 
Over the last 70 years or so, Hollywood has just given us one horrible movie after another showing how that man has destroyed the planet and because of man's foolishness and because of just quirks of nature, the earth is going to be destroyed. In this movie, it's a comet that's about to hit the earth. In that one, it's a meteor. In this one, one of the, those comets or meteors are going to hit the ocean. There's going to have a tsunami. It's going to flood the world. It's interesting they don't believe in the flood, but they can believe that kind of flood, isn't it? And, and global warming is going to fry us, and nobody's going to live. And you wonder, why do they believe this thing? Well, number one, they, they put out the movies because it sells. But secondly, they don't believe that Jesus sustains the universe. They don't. They believe that either we've created the chaos that's about to happen, or that the, the laws of probability, it's just going to happen one of these days. And it's not going to happen until God decides to end it all because he is in charge and Jesus is the one who has that responsibility. What a savior that we have. That he's, He created the world and the universe. He sustains it by his power and he made it for himself. But then there's still more. In this passage... He also talks about his relationship with us, his new creation. In verse 18, it says that he is the head of the church. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 and verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. And he began the very next verse with, Now as the church submits to Christ... Over the years, I have heard some amazingly wonderful things about church. And on occasion, I've heard some really sad, tragic things. In the former category, you don't have to look far to see the overwhelming generosity of Christian people when there's a, a calamity somewhere, whether it's Houston or Florida just recently, are all sorts of things. There's always an outpouring of, of not only love, but concern and care and money and things for people. And I've noticed how that our missionaries in various places around the world are always being cared for and loved, at least by churches that really care about their missionaries. And on a closer note, it's wonderful to see a church take on a middle school that doesn't have the, the best demographics and help them because they need help. Over the years, I've been privileged to, to be with elders in congregations who cared about people, who loved people, who go out of their way to do things for people that most of us will never know the real story because it's none of our business. But they care and they care and they care. And this church is certainly no different. On the other side, just a quick example. I was once uh, attending a, a meeting of, of ministers in a galaxy far, far away. And they brought in a guest speaker for some reason from out of, out of that state. And he was boasting and he said basically about his church, this is my church. No one gets to speak from the pulpit for me. Nothing happens in the church unless I want it to happen. And I thought, wow. On another occasion, I was talking to an elder that was not from any church I was affiliated with and not in this state who once said, I determine what's allowed and not allowed in this church. If I don't like it, it's not happening. There's always a few like that or else 
we wouldn't have the warnings in Acts about elders, watch out for yourselves because there will be wolves coming in. But I'm thinking to myself, I thought it was the Lord's church. When we start saying nothing's going to happen unless I want it, I think we put ourselves on the throne, have we not? I just want to kind of step back and make sure that lightning is not forecast. In the best case scenarios that I just described, Christians realize that Christ controls our reactions and our responses. That's why he's there. That's why he's done all he's done. So we realize my job is just to enjoy and to submit to him because he has everything in my best interest. In the few worst case scenarios, there are people in places of real or imposed leadership who apparently simply forget that Jesus is Lord and King and they assume that place for themselves. There's nothing more wonderful than to see a church be governed by godly men who always ask, what would Jesus have of us? When Glenda and I uh, lost our jobs last year and sold our house, we were free to go anywhere we wanted to. And we decided we wanted to move to Columbia. And you ask why we didn't have a job here. We moved here because we love this church, because we are so impressed with the staff and we're so impressed with the elders that we wanted to be where we could be close enough to be more involved than we had been before. And I hope you feel the same way. But that's not all that Paul said in this passage. Not only is he the head of the church, but he says in verse 18 that he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Now, firstborn from the dead is, a, again, a strange-sounding term for us because he wasn't the first person to ever be raised from the dead. But he was the first never to die again. But that's still not what the, the passage is talking about. Remember when we talked about firstborn over creation means he's heir of creation? It's still that same concept of the firstborn rights. And what he's saying here is he is heir over the, the dead. Revelation chapter 1 just says it that way. It says, Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now, what, what is the, what's the thing that we want out of that? We say, okay, he's the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean for me? I thought about how to say this, and so I, I just decided to let God speak for himself. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul said, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. He says, Jesus, just as Jesus died, was buried, raised again, we live, we die, but we're going to be raised with him. But it's more than that because he doesn't just say that he is firstborn over death. It says here in verse 18, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And he goes on to talk about all things in heaven on earth and so forth. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 20, he even says more. He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, and so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Aren't you glad that we serve a Jesus who has power and control over death? 
And finally, in verse 20, he says, In addition, Jesus is the reconciler of all things. The way he says it in verse 20 is, Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul described the incredible reconciling ability of Jesus because of his death on the cross, using the Jews and the Gentiles as an illustration. And I just want to read it because Paul says it much better than I would ever be able to say this. If you'd like to turn, it's Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 11. Paul said, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who, are, who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to Jesus, to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. If you've ever in your life been at odds with somebody and there was an impasse, you could not get that sob, and someone else comes along and helps restore that breach, you feel so good about it, and you think so highly of that person. We created by our sin the same problem for ourselves with God. And Jesus comes along, and he steps in the breach, he pours his blood over it, and he reconciles us to God. And that's so, so special. But it's not just that he's the reconciler of man. No, he's more. Because it says that he's the reconciler of all things. So I'm going to let one more passage give us the rest of the story. It's an amazing passage that we just don't talk much about. But Romans chapter 4, beginning with, with verse 18, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. Listen to what Paul says. Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of man to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Isn't that amazing? He even comes to reconcile the creation itself. We truly serve a Savior who's more than somebody who walked on water, healed the sick, changed water to wine. All those things are incredible, but compared to all he does, that's just a small portion of the Jesus we serve. And so you ask, what are we supposed to do with this message? Well, this week, 
When you tire of serving somebody else instead of yourself, remind yourself why you're doing that. Because you're serving someone who is both the image and the fullness of God. He's not just someone telling you what to do. He's the creator, sustainer, and heir of the entire universe. More than that, he's your head. He is the promise that you, too, will be raised to life. And so, because of that, out of sheer gratitude, you serve him as he wants you to do. And on those days, when you wonder how in the world you should react to tough situations in life, whether it's someone else's tragic mistake or downfall, or an environmental disaster, or a death, whether it's someone a loved one in this congregation like we've experienced so recently, or a massacre like what happened in Las Vegas, whether it's a cry for help from someone that you care about that called out to you, whether it's your own failings, whether it's a circumstance you didn't plan for and you're certainly not prepared for, first think of the awesome Savior that we serve and the plans that he has for us. As God, by inspiration, wrote, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 If you need to respond to Christ's invitation this evening, we stand ready to serve you, so come as we stand and sing.